Yeah. Because I think if your motivation is income generation rather than child development, you're in it for the wrong reasons. And your key driver will be, how do I get their money out of their pockets into my pockets? And it will be unscrupulous. People will be promising the earth. I can get you a trial here. I can get you a trial there. You know, you hear of some of these people charging people to come to a trial and saying there's going to be this club, that club, that club there with scouts watching. Now, they may charge these children and young people £50 per person. You know, if, if it's quite an austere time, uh, cost of living crisis, but their parents are thinking that this is your opportunity. Even though they know the likelihood of any of those children getting spotted and moving on to anywhere else is minuscule. If they can bring in £2,000 from doing a, a half-day um, trial, they're going to do that because it generates money for them. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, 6 o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today you're going to hear from Simon Millington. Simon is the founder of Della Mill Tutoring, which offers mental health first aid training and training in mental health awareness and sports leadership. He's a UEFA licensed football coach, has worked for Portsmouth FC, Fulham FC and more recently for the FA as a coach developer. And he's also worked extensively as a youth worker for Portsmouth City Council. Really pleased to have you on today, Simon. Welcome. Thank you for uh, inviting me, Naomi. It was lovely to meet you through the player care. And uh, also to meet you, David, you know, and uh, yeah, just have a conversation about um, different things. And uh, yeah, I, I'm keen to learn uh, a little bit more about Locked Up Living because I've seen some of them. And um, yeah, I, I think you, you cover a wide range of different areas, which is uh, what intrigues me the most about, you know, the work that you do. So thank you again for the invite. I was just going to say that that might annoy listeners at times because I think maybe people would like us to stick to a, a very narrow niche. That's certainly the advice that you're given. But I, I suppose the the principle that I've used throughout my career is that there's a lot to be gained by listening to people from very different areas and bringing that knowledge in and that allows for some real creativity. So always really pleased to get the chance to have a conversation with someone that I might not have spoken to otherwise. Yeah, no, thank you. And I appreciate it. Like I said, it, it's just nice. I've done a few podcasts within my own footballing context. Uh, and it's just nice to speak to people from different areas uh, and get different perspectives. I think that's a big part of, um, you know, development. And it's one of my key values. You know, if you're going to develop, you have to go outside your circle to expand your mind, I think, not just stay inside your niche. Excellent. So, Simon, on a similar vein, really, you've had quite a meandering career. I, I don't think you set out with the intention of becoming a mental health tutor. Can you tell us how you came to realise that this was going to be a way for you to make a contribution to society? But I suppose for me, you know, my, my dad died by suicide when I was six, when he just had that confirmed recently. So because of early childhood trauma, sometimes my adolescence went off in, you know, what you might experience with locked up living is, you know, I was getting into trouble with the police um, and um, I didn't want to do that. So I didn't get into criminality in any sort of deep way, but I, I did get into trouble at a low level and to go to magistrates courts and things like that. So I decided I want to get into football, football coaching. Um, because that was where I thought the dream lied, you know, and it wasn't until I got into football coaching and I understood that it's not what you know, it's who you know and the nepotism and how you negotiate that as a non-playing football person. You know, I did play elite level. Uh, I'm not connected with people in the game to a high level, when, especially when I was younger. Um, so, uh, yeah, my, my career meandered through that way because you've almost got to negotiate um, different ways to try and knock on the door. And so it was working within community schemes, in professional clubs, trying to get into their academy setups, which was always difficult because people said, 
oh, you're in a catch-22. You know, you need knowledge and experience to get these roles, but we can't give you any knowledge and experience because you don't have it. Um, so I then went back to youth work and did a lot of social inclusion stuff within Portsmouth because I think it's important that young people get opportunities. And it was through that route that I found my way into the FA and working within their their, um, their their projects to get young people who dropped out of football back into it. And then once I'd got in there, my real passion is coach development, coach education. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, I was a few years down the track doing that and really progressing that one of my friends took his own life. So I've known 10 people who've taken their own lives. Um, but this one really impacted me. Um, and I don't know why. Because uh, we were close, but we weren't super close. You know, we weren't in each other's pockets. We didn't call each other all the time. But it just took me a little bit different. And I was watching the news, uh, BBC, and they were talking about mental health. And uh, MHFA England come up on there. And it was saying, oh, you don't need to be experienced in mental health. You don't have to be a psychologist or a clinician. But what we are looking for is for everyday people with tutoring skills who would... Um, you know, like to uh, get trained and then deliver these courses. So I looked into it, I paid for it myself, and I started to offer those courses uh, alongside what I do um, for the FA. But when I was made redundant for the FA in the pandemic in 2020, I had to have something to fall back on. No one was recruiting during the pandemic. Um, and the, 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 I suppose one of the upsides of the pandemic was you could deliver things online. And um, I started to deliver those, uh, those courses online uh, there and then to try and help me, you know, keep the walls from the door, really, and get, uh, uh, you know, some money coming in. So I suppose um, that's what drew me to mental health initially. It was my friend had died. I had tutoring skills and I wanted to try and use those tutoring skills to play my part in reducing suicide. You know, I've known that many people. I thought something's got to change here. Something's got to give. Um, but it's not since I've started delivering the courses that I've realised they're a bit like a band-aid over a broken leg. Um, they they can really help raise awareness. But beyond that, um, you can't do much. So I want to do more preventative stuff. And that's why I was interested in what Naomi does and her approach from a footballing perspective of how can we stop people getting into a position um, becoming unwell uh, and you know either going into prison because of poor decisions and life instances or um, going on to think that their only solution was to take their own life so that's where I'm at at the moment it's, it's, it's trying to set up football coaching uh, courses which blend in mental health to try and um, you know see if we can prevent a little bit more uh, young people becoming unwell. Thank you, Simon. I, I really love that phrase that you used, negotiating ways to knock on the doors. Um, that's, that's so powerful, I think, that uh, idea. But uh, you noted that quite a large part of your work has involved working with adolescents, and we, we do see an increasing number of accounts about the mental health of adolescent suffering did adolescents go okay with you um as i highlighted there i had good familial support from my mother um wider extended family was quite supportive the area i grew up in in portsmouth was uh, a bit rough and ready and so you know it was easy to fall in with the wrong crowd and then do stuff so i, I attended school well i enjoyed school but when it came to finishing school and going to college, I did a carpentry course and I wanted to get signed up on that. Um, but they said, oh, you need a sponsor to help you. And I was like, I'm 16 years old. I don't know where you get a sponsor for this, this type of activity. So you end up sitting around on the streets and getting drawn into things um, which you, you need to do to earn money. You know, and that was, in my case, shoplifting and um, getting into trouble that way. So it wasn't traumatic, it wasn't difficult. I did have incidents of fighting and, um, 
you know, uh, there was different bits there where it could have went the other way and I could have got into more serious trouble, but I didn't. But for me, adolescence was more tough towards the latter stages of adolescence because um, I was taking a lot of drugs because you end up knocking about with people who, who, who take drugs. And um, I was finding that difficult. You know, that's why I had to break the cycle and get out of that. And um, the DWP put me on a bricklaying course. I went on that. I didn't enjoy that. I didn't want to work in weather like we've got today, which is horrendous out there on a building site. So I said, what else do I like? And that was when football and football coaching was something that I, I was like, I want to explore this. I want to see what this is all about. So I went in a bit doughy eyed and thinking that it would be easy and you'd be able to play football and uh, get to a place where you'd find a full-time job. But it took me nine years to get my first full-time job in football. And that was with Fulham Football Club uh, when I moved to London after traveling. Nine years, that shows great uh, determination and persistence, I think. Yeah, so I, I think that was the nature of it back then. There wasn't as many roles in football. And especially, as I touched on earlier, if you haven't got a history of football from a, a playing perspective, you're not an academic or a teacher, it's very challenging you to break into that, that market. Um, so I had to go that route of social inclusion work and working within a foundation or a community scheme because that's where opportunities were. And then you just had to work your way up through experience and developing your knowledge uh, through CPD courses um, in an informal way as well. So, yeah, it, it links back to that meandering route you highlighted earlier, David. Indeed, yes. So thinking back about your time as an adolescent, do you think adolescents have a more challenging time these days than, than you did? I, I think they do, yeah. I think there's a, there's a couple of elements to it. Social media is now, I think, almost stolen. Some of the freedom that I used to have as a child, you know, you had to go and knock on a friend's door. You had to ring them up from the, the, the phone that was usually in a, a, a central family area so everyone could hear what you were saying and doing. And I think phones and technology are great, but they've also been quite intrusive. And uh, sometimes it's hard for people to switch off from that. There's also a lot of societal norms that they need to adhere to, the way they look, the way they present themselves. So you may have had a small peer group when you were younger who you looked up to and wanted to emulate. I think this has been expanded now and they've got so many influences that they're, they're, they're trying to work with. Additionally, some of the things that I've come across in football coaching, football coach development are parents and inconsistent parenting styles. Uh, they think they're doing the best for their child by helicoptering and solving all their problems there. And, oh, don't worry about that, sweetheart. I'll do that for you. Um, but they, you lose some of those powerful life skills that come with that. And uh, I think children need to learn how to negotiate and manage conflict themselves and not have parents flying in and solving it for them. And you'll get the same within coaching contexts. Sometimes if children get into a disagreement, they'll step in and solve it rather than going, well, let's just let it play out. Let's see if these children can negotiate. Um, you know, will one use humour? Will one be a little bit more disarming? Will they give and take a little bit? Will, will they come to some shared agreement about next steps where adults stepping in? And the other thing on it is everything needs it appears nowadays to be controlled by adults. You know, you're driven to something that's facilitated by an adult. Now, that, that's not for all children. Obviously, some children will go off and explore, and that could be because of parental neglect. It could be because their parents are quite free and happy for them to explore. You know, I think back to my childhood. I would leave at 8 in the morning, 9 in the morning, come back late at night, and... I'd have been up to all sorts of different adventures and then returned home. But I don't think children get those opportunities to recognize risk, danger, how to negotiate that, um, which I think really robs them of some of those key skills. And when they get into adolescence, 
and they're trying to work out how well can I cope or pop back from something that's a setback, it can be more daunting for them, more challenging, because they haven't had the incremental um, ongoing process of dealing with difficulties, negotiating, overcoming challenges and conflicts. You know, and if you're a lad, sometimes getting a punch on the nose <laughs> because someone's punched you on the nose. And it, it's not to advocate people getting punched, but it's saying, I've learned... I've learned that actually if I say that or do that, there's a risk that I could get punched on the nose. Um, and just working out also what your physical capabilities are sometimes um, and knowing what you can do. And so I do think adolescents um, maybe are being a little bit more exposed than they need to be and they should be supported a little bit more. And it's trying to get more of that resilience. But... You know, we could talk about resilience all day and what that means to me could be completely different to what it means to you. And, you know, how do we then support young people to develop them skills? Uh, and I think it's a, it's a wider thing around parents, coaches, and additional supports that can influence that, most definitely. Thank you. That's a really interesting uh, perspective. So what kind of work have you done with young people then? So when I worked, uh, before I even, you know, got my full-time job, it was all social inclusion stuff within Portsmouth. So running football projects to try and give them a diversionary um, activity to do um, for a few hours, a few times a week. So they weren't, you know, getting into as much trouble as they could. And then trying to help them um, identify skills that they had. So some of them might want to go on and do additional training. Um, maybe become workers on those projects in the future for younger people, giving them some education uh, around that. And when I worked for Fulham, I was based in Lambeth, and a lot, a lot, a lot of that was done through diversionary tactics again. And the Premier League set up a kicks project, and uh, we would then put people on that, and I would manage the staff who would oversee the kicks project to make sure that they had diversionary techniques. So what you would find and I'm sure Naomi's experience will um, lend itself to this, is you've got some really hardcore youngsters who are going to really struggle to get out of a gang, really struggle. You know, it, it, they're going to be groomed and entrenched in that, quite difficult. You've then got a bigger cohort who can go either way. So you can get them into sport and other activities, could be art, could be music, but something that diverts them away from that crime. And their friends will recognise that in a gang, and say, okay, we can see you're on a different path. You know, we're not going to influence that and draw you into this because that could be your way out. Um, and it's trying to offer them that robust support in and around that. Because it's quite easy if you grow up in one of these areas, these postcodes in Lambeth, um, and you don't have the strong character, the support, then you will easily fall into that and be initiated into gang type activities. Uh, and unfortunately, I think once you're in, it's extremely difficult to get out of that because of the pressures they face uh, in and around that affiliation. So what we would do is then try to give them that education, training, opportunities to signpost them into more positive activities uh, so then they could work towards that. When I went to work with the FA, the role was to get them to get back into sports, so using sport as a vehicle, because they would drop out of affiliated sport because they didn't like the coaching or the coaching behaviours or the environment, the culture, and they just wanted to play sessions on their own. The challenge with that is it's easier then to get pulled into criminality um, because you haven't got that supportive framework around you. So again, it takes great strength of character for those young people not to be drawn into something. And we know about the risk-taking behaviour of adolescents and the influence of peers. So if their peers are saying, come on, do this, you know, and it seems like fun and enjoyable and there's a bit of an edge to it, they can be attracted to it. Um, so when I worked for Portsmouth City Council as a youth worker, our job was to give them those safe spaces where they could go and experience life without fear of retribution, bias, and just could develop um, 
However, I think we're seeing more and more of it. Those places are being closed down. So those safe spaces are being reduced and they haven't got as many. And I think as part of natural adolescence, they need to be out with their friends and not cooped up with their families um, because they have to go through that key element of developing those skills and recognizing risk and where to go, when to go, and to learn to say no, but in the, the most appropriate way. So a lot of it was using sport as a vehicle to engage them, I understanding their needs and wants and where they wanted to go next, if they even knew that, and then providing opportunities for them to try and explore uh, a variety of different things, um, which could be the step for them to go, right, I want to get educated, I want to get experience, and then after they've done that volunteering for a while, where to go next. As you were talking, Simon, it also made me think about the role of camaraderie and connection and belonging, because I think one of the things that attracts people to gangs is that sense of belonging in a kind of antisocial family, if you like, and I guess team sports mm. or... or even them um, solo sports actually if you're doing it as part of a club offers an opportunity to belong and connect with people in a way that's more pro-social doesn't it and often older yeah. role models um, that people can look up to yeah massively now i mean it is we know that the the influence of their peers in those teenage years is so strong and it's about offering them that positive or more positive because as you say even in a gang the camaraderie's there they are they've got each other's back but it's false camaraderie in a way because as soon as something happens, they'll quickly drop someone um, and they'll leave you isolated. And then th those relationships you thought were strong and reliable then turn out to be completely the opposite and you feel let down and quite exposed then. And uh, yeah, you don't know where to turn to next. So sport can offer that vehicle for people to um, start over and um, you know, get back involved in something and pick up that camaraderie again with a different uh, cohort of people. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's good. So picking up on that uh, and thinking about football, because it, it seems that football has been a really important source of nourishment for you and helps you, or has helped you to overcome you know, the various hurdles that have cropped up in life. So what is it that's so powerful about football and does it have to be football or could it be something else for others? I think for the world, football is so easy to pick up and play. You need a space and a ball and some people. So there's not those restrictions um, around access. So if you went to play tennis, you'd need rackets and access to a court and there's this cost involved. Um, so that's just to, to highlight tennis potentially, but I know tennis is doing some great work now in social inclusion. So it's low cost. Also, it's the most popular sport in the world. Um, so there's lots of opportunities off of the back of that. The FA is the wealthiest NGB in the world, it's the national governing body. So there's money there for projects to be set up for people to run. Uh, I think the thing for me is, I still love the joy of playing the game, the actual sport, the achievement of what that looks like, feels like for me as an individual and then part of a wider team. As I've got older, and this could just be because you get older, you become more cynical, I don't know, but um, the actual politics around the sport and, you know, if we look at the Qatari World Cup at the moment and what's being attracted to that, uh, the disproportionate amount of wealth within um, sport, especially football, for certain people at the top and not so much the others. So my love of the game is still there. My love of the sport is difficult. And this is why I work in a grassroots context as a coach, educator, developer, because I believe it can still provide those skills, that knowledge, the experience for other people um, to get more pro-social things out of it than just the game. Um, and that's where my, my interest lies. But yeah, the sport as a whole and the way that sometimes it's conducted, especially since big business has got involved uh, since the inception of the Premier League, I think it's just changed it um, quite a lot. 
And that's not to say that things were great in the past because we, we still know about the safeguarding concerns of football from years ago. And it's still ongoing. You know, unfortunately, children do still get uh, abused and sexually abused within football. Um, you're never going to eradicate that where uh, children are. There'll always be predators trying to find a way in. Um, but it's being vigilant around that and making sure that young people's experiences are the best that we can offer based on the skill set resources and knowledge that we've got and what we pass on to those others who work with them on an ongoing basis. You can really you. hear the, the, um, the, the sense of conflict, conflict there. So, I mean, we're recording this um, just after England's first game and there is that sense of moral quandary over watching a sport in, uh, in Qatar at the moment. Um, but also when you think about football's relations, relationship to gambling and then also, as you say, the kind of like disproportionate um, accumulation of wealth in certain areas um, that maybe comes at a cost to, to other areas. And, and I suppose related to that, there's quite a lot of interest at the moment in how the academy system can be quite brutal for the vast majority of young players who won't make it as a professional. How, how do they fare when they don't make it and does it take a toll on their mental health? I think this is all individual um, and some of these academies are excellent at doing what they do and offer based on resource. Others, you know, if you're a category three, um, which is the lowest category of football academy, you're not going to be as well resourced, you're not going to be as well staffed. You're going to have people there wearing several different hats. I'm driving the bus, I'm sweeping it out, I'm offering the coaching, I may be doing the analysis. So there's, there's a real stretch on resources as they go up. Now, the pressure increases as well, and that could be external pressure, so parental or guardian pressure about we're in a low socioeconomic situation. If you can become a successful athlete uh, or footballer, you can help us get lifted out of that. So there's external pressure, so I don't think it's just academies. Academies need to probably be more transparent, so some of the best are very good at saying, this is a journey, this is a process, you are entering this, there are no guarantees, you need to work hard, um, and you need to apply yourself. There's ongoing work occurring where people are being supported with understanding their mental health and well-being and how to cope. But... Additionally, there's still a, a, a fair amount of growth to go in that area and it needs to be developed further. Um, but it links back to those parental skills that I'm, I mentioned earlier. If you fly in, solve all their problems, you're not equipping them to be able to solve their problems as they go through. I think there is challenges with the constant assessment. I don't know of any other industry where children go in and then they're assessed um, quite so rigorously across the four corners, you know, technically, tactically, physically, psychologically, socially, um, you know, body composition, are you the right weight, are you the right height, what's your predicted weight, what's your predicted height, are you good enough, you know, we know that development's not linear, so it's not a, st a straight line, you can go forwards, backwards, sideways, um, so who is making these, these um judgments on these young people what is the criteria for those judgments um and then yeah if they're so invested in becoming a footballer and then that's taken to them i think there is a bereavement a grief process there around i've lost that i don't know what's next and for some people if they don't have the underpinning foundations to cope with life and these setbacks then unfortunately they get to a position where they think my only option is to self-harm or hurt myself through suicide. And we've seen some recent stories again of young footballers, um, I think it was last week, at least one or two who have taken their own lives at under 23 level. So I think there's still work to do, but that's a societal thing as well. So football is a, a representation of that. Um, and it can do more, but society can do more as well. And um, I think it's one of those collaborative approaches. If we think of ourselves as communities, how well do our communities function? You know, 
it used to be it takes a village to bring up a child has that been fractured has that become something that's not as strong as it used to be uh, and is it something that we need to have these communities that are quite robust some of the difficulties academies face are the money they pay the employees is low level unless you're at a top level academy so you'll always find that people are looking for an opportunity to then go to the next opportunity so you've got churn of staff that's unsettling for people that means continuity is difficult and also those people if they're earning quite low money how invested are they in doing it to the best of their ability you may get certain types who have the wealth and don't need to earn the money from academy additionally you might have young people who are just starting out how much life experience have they got around supporting you know someone who could potentially maybe only be 12 years younger than them and you think well what are you drawing on how are you then trying to pass that on and do they get mentored enough when they go into that position around that holistic approach to player development um, some might get it right but I, I would say that it's not consistent across the board make some really um, good observations that I think are applicable to institutions across the board so I think if you were to think about the military I think you might come up with some similar um, observations and certainly I think with the prison service you know there's the criticism of you know not paying people enough for doing a very stressful job um, that sometimes you may be decades younger than people that you're trying to support so you can hear um, that actually if organisations want to be promoting well-being and a culture that is gen genuinely nourishing and supportive that there has to be some investment in the kind of structures that that would support that not just expect to pay peanuts for a few people who can come in and and just offer a bit of a bit of support yeah i think if you want professional people um you have to pay professional money and you also have to have that almost chartered approach to their development of you have to adhere to quite strict registra uh, registration and ongoing development for you to be recognised as an expert in your field. And I don't see why that can't be applied to a football coaching context. They've been talking about professionalising coaching for a long time, um, but do you see that chartered element where people are recognised for their expertise? Sometimes it's just your expertise is based off the back of my subjective opinion of you um, and if enough people buy into that subjective opinion you're then seen as best in class where you would say well in other professions you have to show that level of application to learning development and ongoing knowledge and skill acquisition to then apply that and make sure it's for the best outcomes of the people you're working with and I think that's something that could be further developed most definitely. Thank you. Related to that, do you think the current system for identifying talent and nurturing it from such an early age is really in the best interest of, of children? It might be in, in the interest of clubs, but it's, you know, hand on heart, can you say that that's, that's good for kids? No, I, I don't. I think it's commercialisation of young people. You know, it's borderline, you know, slavery, not slavery because they're entering it, but the monetization of, you know, I know of young people who have been given opportunities. They then sign a contract for uh, an organization at amateur level, you know, so they're in an academy. But if they want to leave, because that academy's played a part in their development, they're entitled to some money for that. And until they get money from another organisation, that child is then left in limbo. So they can't even then go back and play for a grassroots club because, you know, um, they need some money. And because that person might leave, go to grassroots and then join another club and they don't get compensated. And you think, that child's 11. You know, why are you having these type of discussions about that? Additionally, talent ID going down to three, four, five, six, seven-year-olds. Um, what are you basing it on? What physical attributes? 
So, okay, at that age, they can dribble with the ball faster than someone else, pass. So I honestly believe that some people are born with their talent. Uh, others enhance it through uh, commitment and drive and passion and, you know, wanting to be the best. But you can spot a talented footballer at a young age. That doesn't mean that you need to take them into your uh, um, setup. The only reason they do that, and uh, it used to be like panning for gold. You know, you're, you're trying to find that golden nugget that you think could potentially go on to play elite level football and you want them attributed to their, your club because then, you know, you can either get them to play for the first team or if they don't make it at your club, they'll go on to other places. So if you look at some of the bigger clubs, I'm not going to name names in the Premier League, they hoover up lots of children, put them through their system, put them out in loans or sell them and it is a commercial entity. You know, so they're, they're using it as a conveyor belt to generate income. And you think, is that for the best interest of the young person? If the young person goes on to have a successful career, they might think, I'm happy trading off my childhood to get that. But I think uh, it may be AIK Gothenburg. They won't take the children until at least adolescence, so 13, 14. So they've had a bit more of life development, a bit more choice. Um, and there's some good people there like James Vaughan and uh, Marco Sullivan who uh, are leading the way on athlete-centered coaching, constraints-based coaching within an, a, a professional setting, which I think you know could be a model that others replicate. I know that Bayern Munich have started to take players in later because they're saying, well, actually, why do we need to take them in at nine? There's no... Um, because what you'll find is sometimes they'll go in at that nine years of age and they won't be able to play with their, their friends anymore back in a grassroots setting because the clubs say, we don't want you getting injured. Um, and I might only be paying, you know, a, a tiny bit of football in comparison to my friends. So it's a real conundrum. Um, but I don't believe they should go in until at least 14, at least. You know, and there's still an argument to say that's too young. Yeah, do you think we should be expecting more from the FA in terms of taking a moral stance there? Oh, I honestly believe the FA can do a hell of a lot more in relation to moral stances. You know, one of my big thing is to get more mental health awareness training for grassroots football coaches. You know, we do emergency aid, we do safeguarding. For me, part of that is understanding the signs and symptoms of um, potential mental ill health and getting young people signposted as quickly as possible. Uh, so they can try and, you know, either de deal with it as a family or get professional support from experts. Uh, especially if you think body composition and wanting a figure like Ronaldo and trying to achieve that figure uh, is something they're after. You could get body dysmorphia, eating disorders, and they could start to really get implemented, impacted rather, by those images. Am I seeing what I want to see? And I know some uh, of these businesses I would say so you have professional academies where there's no charge but then there's a whole massive underground of academies academies where people pay for their child to go and some of these academies sell Herbalife to children um, to try and encourage them you know you need Herbalife well Herbalife is a Ponzi scheme it's you know a pyramid scheme people buy it and the more people who buy it, the people at the top earn good money. There's no nutritional value to it at all. So why do these what young is, people... What is it, Simon? What is that you're talking about? It's, a, it's, it's, it's just a powdered drink that you add water to, shake it up, and it's supposed to give you nutritional value. It, it's got no nutritional value. But some of these academies that you pay for, you know, the ones that sit outside of the professional ranks... Um, they sell this. They sell this to children. They sell this to parents to say this will help them develop that footballer body. Um, so when they take it and they don't, you know, all of a sudden they're going to think, well, I need to do other things potentially to get, you know, the weight loss down and look muscular and develop that way. And that body dysmorphia could start to come in for them. So I think the FA could do more around education and training. Um, definitely for... Uh, grassroots football coaches but also they need to do more for these academies that are popping up 
I mean, Naomi, David, you could set one up. You know, there's no real barrier to that. And the, the, the challenge is they're starting to come to light that people are setting these up and they're, they're um, pedophiles. They're setting them up for the explicit reason to get access to children. And a guy was recently caught in London um, because he was sexually abusing children, set one of these academies up. There's no kite mark system for these, so no one knows should the people be um, there. And if the, the parents are unaware of the checks and balances they should put in place to see if these people are fit for purpose, then, you know, they're, they're exposing their children to quite dangerous situations. And, um, yeah, I, I most definitely think there needs to be more done um, by the FA, by their affiliated counties, to make sure that um, safeguarding is, is thorough and robust. And, um, you know, these young people aren't exposed to, you know, potential abuse. But also um, these other professional academies where people are paying for the service um, are monitored because, you know, people are earning a lot of money off of setting up these entities. And, um, you know, what's, what's, the, um, what's the protocols, what's the policies, the procedures that they should adhere to? I'm unaware that there are ones that they are adhering to. Now, some of them might be kite marked by a county FA, but there's a lot that sit outside of that. It's quite frightening, really, isn't it? Especially given the, the extensive stories we have heard about child abuse in sport and how vulnerable kids are when, when there's something that they really want ahead of them. Yeah, because I think if your motivation is income generation rather than child development, you're in it for the wrong reasons. And your key driver will be, how do I get their money out of their pockets into my pockets? And it will be unscrupulous. People will be promising the earth. I can get you a trial here. I can get you a trial there. You know, you hear of some of these people charging people to come to a trial and saying there's going to be this club, that club, that club there with scouts watching. Now, they may charge these children and young people £50 per person. You know, if, if it's quite an austere time, uh, cost of living crisis, but their parents are thinking that this is your opportunity. Even though they know the likelihood of any of those children getting spotted and moving on to anywhere else is minuscule. If they can bring in £2,000 from doing a, a half-day um, trial, they're going to do that because it generates money for them. Yeah. Thank you. In, in the last 12 months, we've had quite a lot of stories about footballers, professional footballers, allegedly engaging in criminal behaviour, quite serious criminal behaviour as well. Joe Public tends to assume it's because they're spoiled and entitled. Is this a fair analysis, do you think? No, I, I don't think it is, but it depends on the criminality they've um, entered in. So we, we do know that some people who get released from football clubs go back to a difficult and challenging environment where they grew up. And, you know, if they've got used to a certain level of money coming in, some of the, the ways that they can generate that income is through criminality, and whether that's selling drugs or doing other things. So it's easy to fall back into that. And I remember when I was at um, one of the professional clubs mentioned that I worked at, there was a lad who was playing senior level football, you know, reserve team, first team football. And one of his friends was in prison and he was up in Liverpool and they noticed that um, someone that his friend didn't like, they were after, they then attacked him, beat this person up quite seriously. He got arrested, his football career's over. Because of that, you know, I want to look out for my friend mentality and uh, he's been caught. So I think there is those social barriers, you know, those boundaries that we've touched on briefly around gang, gang affiliation, the strength of that. And some people, when they return back to that environment, find it very difficult to break that cycle. It's like when someone gets re released from prison, they go back. If they went to a completely different environment, with the behaviours they'd learnt in prison and their, their rottle, they would have been released.
they would probably be successful. But if they return back to their neighbourhood, that environment where you know they've grown up, there's a massive, there's a massive um, you know possibility that they're going to go back to criminality because of the pressure and the grooming that's happened around. There's an expectation that you will do this, and I think for some young people growing up in that that sort of neighbourhood. When football fails, it's very easy to fall back into that. And uh, I don't believe footballers um, are supported as strongly as they could. It's getting better. So charities like Sport and Chance will provide education and training. There'll be other charities. The e, uh, LFE, the EFL are doing lots of workshops around financial management, how to plan for a second career. Um, but still, I do a lot of assessments for uh, Pearson of young professional footballers and there's a lot who are still saying well if I don't make it as a footballer I'll make it as a football coach and you know they don't really appreciate how difficult it is and they think just because I've played well you're competing with a lot of guys coming out of football as well um, and you know why do you think that you would get a job over them and you hear of a lot of really good footballers leaving football um, and they can't get an opportunity back in football, you know, so then they have to find what's my second career, where do I go through? Um, and it's okay if they've earned good wealth and they've made sound investments. But, you know, if you look at even League One, League Two, I think some of them are only on 80,000 a year. Once their career's over, you know, at 32, 34, 35, if they haven't invested money properly, they're going to just have to get a normal job like everyone else. And, you know, that can be a big blow to the status, the ego. And um, how they manage those transitions, I think, is one of the key areas of why um, some of them, you know, don't go on to be uh, successful and carry on living. Because, you know, it's, it's such a big transition for them. Yeah, I think you make some really excellent points there. I was also thinking about um, how quite often I think the sport can really help regulate, help people regulate their emotions because, you know, they have some focus and, uh, you know, all the concentration on the, the attention to your body can be really helpful in terms of your breathing and taking good care of, taking good care of yourself, exercise, all the rest of it. But I guess the problem is for some people, they then lack skills for regulating their emotion away from the sport or outside of that sport. And also the highs and lows that come with being a successful athlete that are also hard to adjust to. So I know certainly um, a couple of, of people I know who have found it very, very difficult once they've given up the sport to manage to cope with their emotions effectively once they've stepped away from, from actually playing. Yeah, no, great point. So finally, Simon, when you're in, working in mental health, you're often exposed to really sad stories about people's struggles. And I was quite quite shocked to hear that you knew 10 people who'd taken their own mm. lives, actually. That seems um, a, a very high number. Um, how have you managed to maintain your own well-being whilst you do this kind of work? Well, I'm fortunate in relation to I deliver courses to help people raise their awareness. So my individual supervision of others and listening to heartbreaking stories. So you may get some people who come on a course and want to share uh, something because it's cathartic and they want to offload it. However, that's within a group context and someone's just saying, this is a tough time I went with. Me actually dealing with people one-to-one -one and speaking to them and hearing their harrowing stories, I haven't really had to deal with that. So I've been quite fortunate in that respect the impact on other people you know suicide some of the guys are acquaintances and i grew up in portsmouth quite a macho place when i was growing up where bloke they just didn't talk about these things and i know talking is one element of people um, getting things off their chest but most of them who went on to take their lives did it through impulsive suicide they separated with a partner, couldn't see their children, started using recreational drink and drugs. Um, and that then led them to, you know, make that decision. I think my friend, uh, my, the very first guy I knew, he took his life because he was schizophrenic and he was experiencing challenges with psychotic thoughts. 
and he didn't want to act on them. And the, the person that died most recently, that, that was a challenge just because I, I found it difficult to understand the why. Why, mate? You know, you seemed in a good place. And that was the one that affected me the most. Now, I have, I've spoke to counsellors uh, about that. Um, I've gone to self-referral um, IAPT through the NHS to speak with someone about managing anger, managing frustration, trying to regulate my own emotions. And uh, it's one of those where that's what I've done. Um, I've dealt with it a lot myself. I haven't really spoke to other. It's not something I would speak to friends about. It's not something I would speak to colleagues about unless we had a shared interest in that topic and we were both comfortable. Because uh, working within football, you know, when someone says to you, how are you? And if you turn around and start saying, terrible, actually, my friend's just taking their own lives. You, they're going to walk off in the other direction pretty fast. So they're not always going to be supportive and say, OK, let's find a place to go and talk this through. And, you know, um, let's listen to what's happening for you. So it's those environments. And because of the environment I grew up in as a young lad, you know, it's not something you speak to those type of mates about either. You know, it's a lot of banter, taking the mickey out of each other. But if I was to say, look, I need to talk to you about something uh, a bit more serious, I don't think, you know, that conversation would flow. So speaking to my partner about it, she's very supportive, uh, you know, and then people I meet through this work, uh, they're more open to these conversations. So other organisations involved in sport. Um, I've just become a trustee of the Tommy Christ Foundation. So you meet lots of people who gravitate towards it um, and they're easier to have a conversation about because they're more open and go, you know what? If we want to reduce stigma and discrimination around this topic, we have to role model that. We have to be the change that we want to see and uh, they're happy to you know be involved in those conversations thank you very much simon that was a really interesting conversation i'm conscious of the fact you've got a, a, an appointment straight afterwards so i don't want to delay yeah. you thank you thank you naomi thank you david i really appreciate you your time and uh, you know allowing me to just share my thoughts on these different areas thank you simon that was a really interesting conversation brilliant thanks very much